Namo Dasa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambuddhasa Namo Dasa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambuddhasa Namo Dasa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambuddhasa Homage to the Buddha, the Blessed Noble and Fully Self-Awakened One. I just thought we'd bring the week to an end by going through the ten perfections, or at least some of them. The uh, parami. Parami actually means the other shore. Buddha always talks about uh, nirvana or that <coughs> final place as something transcendent. So it's an island. He talks about it as an island. And uh, I just want to talk about, I'll start off with, without ever um, uh, topic of love. So, uh, this word love, uh, it goes from the sublime to the ridiculous. <laughs> so we love ice cream, and we love God, my God. So, <clears throat> it's really just trying to uh, look at human beings, uh, relationship between human beings. Uh, Jean-Paul Sartre, in one of his plays, uh, which is about hell, he says, I think somewhere he says, l'enfer, c'est les autres. Hell is the other people. <laughs> it's, the, it's the others. <laughs> and in his play, if I remember rightly, I should have looked it up, he has a homosexual, a heterosexual, and a lesbian, stuck in this room forever. <laughs> and their sexual orientations... Uh, really tell you that they just simply cannot communicate on any level. So our task really is to form relationship with human beings that are um, wholesome, skillful and all that. And this whole business about attachment and what it means and how it manifests. So uh, if we define attachment as a psychological dependency on someone, in this case, human being, for our happiness. See, then we have all the same problems that we had with porridge, with attachment to porridge. And uh, if we just uh, think about that, then you'll see that it's very easy to pick up when we're being, when we're using the other person as an object. Remember that as soon as the other person is there to please you, um, then they, they, they become an object, they become something that is pleasing you. That doesn't mean to say they can't please you, it's the reason why you're doing something is for them to please you. There's a difference. Huh? So if, if uh, you have a friend or a partner or somebody who's, who's funny, uh, then um, you know, they make you laugh. But if that's what you want from them, right, if you ask them for that, then they become a comedian. They become somebody whom, <laughs> whom you expect to make you laugh. See, So this whole business about how we relate to people, our definitions of them, and uh, just to see if we can uh, recognize certain things. Now, uh, when we're children, of course, when we're little babies and stuff, attachment's absolutely necessary. Because in order to have true love, you have to be a... Um, a mature human being. 
And in Freudian understanding anyway, you don't get to you don't get to full maturity of ego until you're twenty one. That's right, whatever. But the thing is that there's a sort of maturation process and the child's attachment to its mother and father is just part and parcel of their beginning relationship with the other. Because at that time, it, the other's all for them. I mean, it's, it's all demanding and all, consu- all consuming. Because from their point of view, they're the only important person in the world. So the relationship that we start off with is one of attachment. I mean, it's, it's just part and parcel. But it's through that that we form this sort of uh, a relationship. And <clears throat> as we pass through various stages and the, the, the sort of uh, scruffiness of teenage... And then you end up at the end of the process, uh, 18, 19, 20, 21, uh, slowly sort of um, beginning to feel that you are um, entire, you're, you're sort of grown up, as they say, an adult. And at this point, of course, you're, uh, if your relationship hasn't changed to human beings as it was when you were 15 and 14 and 3 and 4, then you know, life's going to get difficult. So, <clears throat> although it's necessary for the child to have that attachment, it's not necessary for the mother or the father. And of course, that's difficult to understand. And before we go any further, do make a distinction between uh, unwholesome, just unwholesome states, and, and sort of immorality in the sense of defined by the five precepts. We're not talking about murder and thieving and, and all that sort of stuff. We're talking about just... Unwholesomeness that comes into a relationship which um, begins to move away from love and towards control. So that's your movement. Whenever there's attachment, you want to control the person because you want them to please you. And recognising that when we're in relationship with somebody, whether it's uh, an intimate relationship or a friendship or anything like that, I mean, that's, that's the marker. And... Depending on the other person and their relationship to human beings, um, their feeling of being demanded upon uh, may actually satisfy their, their feelings of attachment, of, uh, of feeling needed and that sort of stuff. So it's not always the case that although we are aware that we are, ex- that we are um, behaving from a control point of view, the other person might not experience that. They might actually like to be controlled. So there's a whole sort of dynamic which gets very, very complicated. But uh, at least we ourselves can, can wake up every time we, we are imposing upon uh, the other. So uh, as usual, you see, uh, you know, if, <coughs> if your friend, your partner, your child or whatever, if... If you're angry with them, then, uh, you know, that, that's coming from a place where you expected them or wanted them to do something. See? Now, it's not as though the other person, especially children, shouldn't do what you tell them to do. But <laughs> it's the anger which is not necessary. Now, I know some people argue that anger is good, you know, if you, if you take the energy and transform it. Yeah, if you can take the energy and transform it, that's good. But as just... Anger, just being angry with somebody, uh, that's obviously uh, uh, a confrontation. 
you know, confrontation. So either you diminish the person, they actually have to be humbled and shamed, or they, or they fight, and then one of you has to escape. So uh, frustration with somebody, frustration, whenever frustration arises. Uh, grief, I mean, that's, that's a regular one, see? Uh, the loss of a friend, whether, whether they just got upset with you and ran off and turned away, or a partner, a uh, partner who died, whatever. There's always that grief. And again, you have to sort of separate out the sorrow uh, from grief. So um, sorrow is what you might call uh, just a natural feeling which arises when you contact somebody else's suffering. When you contact somebody else's suffering. Uh, it can be just at the sight of them, the feel of them. It can almost sometimes be quite visceral, that like you actually feel their suffering. And what that, what that ought to do, of course, is bring out the compassion, or wanting to help. But the grief, of course, is turning inwards. It's, it's, it's a form of self-pity. And... If we, if we confuse grief with sorrow, then it's very difficult to stop grieving because, the, because a person measures their, their love by their grief. You know, like uh, the sense of loss, the sense of, uh, uh, of emptiness, uh, the loss of a person. You're left with this grief which you feel is, or the person says to themselves, well, that's, that's an expression of my love, but actually it's an expression of attachment. And what happens is, as soon as a person begins to grieve less, they get guilty. It means they're not loving them as much as they used to. So they've got to bring up the grief again. This came home to me at a very stark example when an elder, uh, a late middle-aged woman came in and said that she'd been grieving her son for five years, couldn't stop. And I pointed this out to her. And um, she seemed to click. And she came back the next week and said that her, her grief had completely gone. And what she'd done is to, is to go to the grave, to accept the death of her son, and then to wish, uh, wish him all the best, you know, in, in whatever future life. In other words, that sort of letting go, see. There may still be a certain sorrow uh, at the cause of death, of, uh, uh, the, uh, the person died young, there's that you see, but it's not. But that's. But that again is a, is a contact with the person, and their suffering. It's not actually turning inward towards ourselves and saying, "Oh, poor me." See, we don't like to say that. We don't like to see grief as, "Oh, poor me." But that's actually what it is. It's a again. It's one of these distinctions. It's very difficult. It's like indulgence and enjoyment. Yeah, and you've just got to work at it really. Then, of course, there's this uh, fear. And that, of course, that's when the control of the other becomes uh, quite, um, quite, quite obvious. Um, my dear mother <laughs> was a sort of uh, heavy, uh, uh, wonderful Italian mother, but my God, she had, a <laughs> she had us all. Uh, and you had to fight to get out of the door, you know, especially at certain times, just in case somebody would attack you or murder you or something. It was just unbelievable. Uh, we all did escape in and she couldn't handle three boys. So it was, <laughs> it was a case of uh, really uh, her, you know, feeding on her fear of, of what might happen to her children. 
And that, of course, is, is again, it's understandable. It's not as though you can't understand that. It's, it's, uh, but it, what it does is, of course, it, it creates a, a control around the child which uh, can, can stymie that child's development, depending. And uh, just the fear which moves into the fear of loss, which slips into jealousy, uh, wondering whether your partner's nipping off with somebody else in, in the dark. It, it sort of manifests in, in various ways this fear of loss that's underlying the, um, the attachment. And remember, the attachment is because uh, there's a part of us, a part of our happiness, which is dependent upon that person. And then there's the, um, uh, the sort of addictive behaviour, um, you know, the having to have the same, uh, the same person. It's a sort of, another way of controlling that the person can't change. So often throughout life, of course, we change, and it's often a case that in midlife, uh, people change so much that they separate. And uh, that sort of change produces a, a real uh, clash within one of them. If one of them changes, the other one doesn't. You know, it's, it becomes a real sort of clash, and they find it very difficult because they can't control the other person's change. Uh, you often hear stories, people of of people who uh, have become have moved towards Buddhism, and the partners gone, gone absolutely berserk. You know, I think they, I mean, partly sort of wrong understanding about uh, becoming a part of a sect or something and all that. But but it was but it's in sometimes it's just this business of, you know, uh, you, that, that isn't the person I married, that isn't the person I formed a, a relationship with. And so, again, it's a sort of cramping thing, like holding on, see. And again, always based on this sort of control and the fact that we're dependent on them uh, for a certain level of our happiness. And then all the other stuff that comes up, you know, sort of general boredom, <laughs> With friends and partners, you know, so all that sort of <laughs> rubbish that arises between uh, people. Now, I, now, it's sort of um, the cure isn't, you see, to try and kill this stuff because as soon as you try and kill it, so you notice one of these attitudes coming up and you try and kill it, you see, uh, you try and sort of bury it. Well, all it does is, you know, it just comes round the back and and feeds into little. Un, un, uh, uh, unresolved grudges and, and all this sort of stuff and in the end it all explodes and it's all very terrible um, so uh, one of the things that um, one, of, one, of, one of the purposes of meditation is to, is to perhaps even bring up a memory where that's arisen and just get in contact with it you see uh, in, when you're actually in a situation to be aware of it arising that's very difficult when you're in in process, to be aware of it arising, and just to be able to keep it to one side, not to push it away, but to actually just park it there and produce that different attitude. So as soon as you find yourself getting irritated with somebody, it could be anything, it could be on a phone, it could be a person at work, as soon as you find that irritation, it just, just to be, if you can catch it at the arising, it's within your control. Once it's once it's risen too far, it's beginning to affect the way you're talking, the way you're looking, uh, your blood pressure. See, so <laughs> so, but if you catch it just as it's coming and, and you sort of park it and you put your entire attention on what the person is saying rather than what your reaction is to what the person is saying, 
then, uh, then there's that effort to communicate. And of course, that often, uh, to the other person, often feels like being listened to. See? Remember, often when we're talking, we're, we're actually, we've got our answers prepared before they finish saying the first few words. And that, you know, when, if, if we're really in conversation with somebody, um, ideally speaking, our attention is completely on listening, and then there's a moment where you have to switch gear, and, and you have to think, oh, right, my response, and then the response comes. There's always a little moment, a sort of a, a gap, as you move from one uh, mode of receiving to the, to the next mode of responding. But of course, you know, when you hear people speaking, they, they often speak over each other. Uh, politicians, they don't listen to you. <laughs> when they, do, they get three different parties on, on, on the radio or TV, and they're, like it's, they're just talking over each other. So uh, all these little indications are for us to work on, you see, and just keep bringing ourselves back to that meta, which is just uh, a, an openness, a kindness, a gentleness, um, and all the qualities that uh, you, you would sort of expect of, of, a, of a friend, you see. I mean, it goes much deeper than that, of course. It's about, it's about trust, it's about, you know, a friend who may also, I mean... Uh, your partner, your your spouse, uh, your your brothers, your sisters—all these people can become sort of confidants, you know, whom you you know, and and part of that is the ability to trust that the person isn't going to put it on the, on the social media, you know. That's bad news, isn't it? <laughs> Which unfortunately happens. Um, there's a case, this silly case, of typical Western tourist. They walk up this holy mountain in Malaysia it's um it's more of a it's not it's not a Muslim holy mountain it's a, one of the ethnic groups there and it's, well it's a holy mountain and they think that their ancestors live up there and so they have a whole ritual about going up this holy mountain you know they take chickens up and stuff like that and uh, they went up there and uh, posed in the nude about six or seven of them and then stuck it on social media well of course Within seconds, it was into the Malaysian authorities' hands <laughs> that came down. They were, they were arrested, you know, and luckily one of the women said it was all very foolish and stupid, you know, probably the, the thin air. And uh, <laughs> they'd been put in jail for three days and fined. It's just, <laughs> they just, uh, you have to be very careful. I, I, I eschew all social media. So, uh, some indications anyway about uh, Meta. And it's 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 a subtle enemy. That's what it's known as attachment. Um, similarly, when it comes to these other forms like compassion, so compassion, um, you know, the subtle enemy is is grief or pity for somebody. And uh, often, again, the person is using their compassionate acts in order to feel good. So. The, the, the definition of a of a do-gooder is that you know they do you the good they want to do you because it makes them feel good. You know, so I mean, if if a friend turns up when you're sick and, and has, has made this special chicken soup <laughs> and you oh, vegetable soup, excuse me, I'm talking to vegetarian, uh, vegetable soup. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not saying I want chicken soup. <laughs> Let's get that clear, please. Clear, boys. 
uh, vegetable soup, you know, and, and, and you say, well, you know, I, I just can't eat it. So, oh, that's all I said, but you could do something for me. So, what's that? Is he clean the toilet? And, well, you know, well, I didn't come to clean your toilet, for God's sake, I came to give you some soup. So you get all upset about it, you know. And then, of course, they start doing things that you don't want them to do, you know, and you throw them out. And they go away and say, I can't understand it, you know, I just went there to help. That's all I did, you know, and they, 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 they threw me out. <laughs> you know, it's all very strange mental states that people get into. And not being appreciated, you know, they didn't say thank you, you know, they didn't, didn't, didn't buy me a present after all I did for them and all that sort of stuff. So the whole thing about generosity is, of course, if it's, if, it's a, if it's a real act from the heart, then, of course, it's given without presumption of any return from it. And people do it quite, quite easily for things like these um, appeals, you know, for earthquakes and stuff like that. They're very happy to, to give, knowing they're not going to get a, a penny from it themselves, apart from that feeling of goodness that they, you know, try to help the situation. But that's not always true between... Uh, human beings, you're always, you know. And I think you've got to be careful, you've got to be silly about it. Like, for instance, you know, there's, there's the ritual swapping of gifts at Christmas, you know. You get a lump of cheese and, and they get, and they get uh, socks, you know. <laughs> that's fine, that's just, that's just, that's just a sort of, you know, like two warring tribes come together and, and offer each other gifts, you know. <laughs> so, we won't fight anymore, so, oh, that's all right then. Uh, but when you actually want to be generous in the sense of giving something, your time, your wealth, then uh, you really have to set your mind onto. Yeah, you know, it's not if you do it spontaneously. Inverted commas, uh, the old habits will be underneath it because they're there. You know, so you have to make it quite, quite uh, uh, self-conscious act. You've got to be, you know, a real determination. You know, I mean, it's it's very easy. Most of us. Uh, say yes too easily, you know. I, uh, one of the family says, you know, I'm, uh, we're, de- we're redecorating, you know, have you, have you got time to come over? Oh, yeah. Do you want to come over Saturday? Oh, yeah. Yeah, come over, yeah. And then when they've gone, you think, oh, God, I don't want to go over there, you know. And then, and then the phone call, I've got a terrible headache. I'm not well. <laughs> Just any, anything, not to go. And it, it, you know, all you had to do was just stop for a minute and say, well, you know, I, I don't think I can come this Saturday and so on and so forth, you know, make, make sort of sobbing excuses. So uh, the, the idea of compassion yeah, it comes under this whole business of generosity, see? and it's coming from the heart of wanting to help. And um, when you give it, you see, whatever you're giving... Um, uh, in, in the scriptures it says you know there are three parts there's, there's one part which what you are giving has been attained uh, in a wholesome way so your money has been earned through a wholesome job or, or whatever and you're giving it uh, without any hope of return without any consequence and you're giving it to somebody who is who is worthy of the gift okay? so uh, and this brings up the old question about people on the streets you see well, if you know somebody is going to use your money for, um, for drugs and whatnot, then it's up to you whether you want to give it and whatnot, you know. But, but you can give it and say, and make sure that they know what your intention is, you know. This is to help you get night lodgings or, or food. What they do with it is their problem, you know. It's like, and else you, you get yourself into all sorts of silly states. And uh, generosity in the, in the commentaries, 
Uh, this is not in the scriptures as such, as far as I know. But they point out that generosity itself is actually a path to liberation. Because every time you're generous, every time you're giving something without hope of return, you're, you're actually renouncing something. Now the whole of the spiritual life is renunciation. The whole of it. The whole of the spiritual life renunciation. And this renunciation, remember, isn't, isn't some sort of self-mortification. We don't have to end up you know, in rags on the streets or something. It's, it's letting go of these attachments, letting go of these uh, um, relationships we have to things, to our money, to our, to our possessions, and to people, and to our time. You know, my time is for me. And when you, when you offer that, when you offer your, some of your wealth or some of your time for the benefit of somebody else, what you're actually doing is saying, well, I'm not going to use this, this amount of money to make me happy. I'm not going to, I'm going to have to give up going to... Uh, the Costa del Sol this summer, okay. or worse, <laughs> and and I could use this time to you know listen to heavy rock, but I'm I'm going to help you paint this paint the walls. So uh, that sense of um, of giving something also has this uh, basic thing about renunciation, you see, and all this is quite easy uh, when you uh, when you come from the position of gratitude. So uh, this, this gr uh, gratitude is such a, a lovely mental state to develop. And um, just, just, at any, just at any time, at any time of the day, uh, whatever you're experiencing, having had that experience to say thank you, whether, you, whether you've just eaten a, uh, just a cup of coffee at one of the coffee houses or whether you've just had a, a meeting with a friend or whether you've just, uh, you've just been caught in the rain and you're soaking wet, say thank you. Just, and it's, it's this business of, of just recognizing, you know, the, the little gifts that are given to us every day. Every day somebody, some, something, something happens which is just given without your asking. Even if, it, even if it's only the level of, you know, uh, the air that you breathe. Hmm? It doesn't have to be there, does it? So you can actually go down even to sort of basic physical things to... To raise that sense of gratitude, and then the rest of it follows quite simply, quite easily, usually. So uh, you have to be careful with uh, this business of compassion. And again, it's always to do with intention. So as soon as you want to move, to make sure your conscious intention is wholesome. See, sometimes we're not aware of subliminal stuff; it pops up later. You know, I mean, one example I always give is, you know, like like here when. If you make an offering here, you see, you, you, you know, this is for the benefit of other meditators who come in, right? Because everything, everything you've received has already been paid for by past donations. So this is for the benefit of others, you see. And then, then you, and then when that's really filled your heart, that's when you, you let go of it. So that's the point. Now that action is, is a habit. You're creating the habit of just giving. Remember, there's a, that distinction between a desire and the empowerment of the desire, see? So it depends on, on the desire, you see? And then, of course, once you've given it, you always get this little voice, you know, saying, you are truly a very generous person. Or, you know, too much gets them back. So, so, so as soon as you see that, you just say, well, that's old Mara, you see? That wasn't me. That's just, that's just the old habits coming through. And so you've got to be careful not to be judgmental about that. 
See, I must be a horrible, terrible person because I can't give something purely. Because you did. You did give something purely. So, um, uh, the, these, things, these things are a sort of constant in our lives. You know, people ask us for little favours here and there. Um, I, I got on a bus a while back and um, I, I, I must have looked terrible or something because this person actually got up and gave me their seat. <laughs> I was like, well, I expected that in the 50s or the 60s. You don't expect anybody to get up for some old codger. <laughs> I thought, that doesn't sound like thank you very much. <laughs> so, uh, these little gifts. Now, the other, <clears throat> the other ones, uh, perfections, where are we? Pardon me. So it starts off with the perfection of giving, the perfection of morality. So remember that our, our ethics is the measure of our delusion or enlightenment. These, um, all these five um, training rules that we keep, not to kill living beings and not to take what is not freely given, remember those are really gross things and our job is to really move towards a refinement of our, of our, of our conscience, a refinement of our behaviour, um, and in a sense, that's what the Buddha was trying to do with this vinaya for monks. He was trying to, trying to make it so that the behaviour of, of his monastics were were refined. He's got, got masses of rules, even on on how to eat. We can't chapu chapu or suru suru. You know, chapu chapu me. And suru so when you take a drink, <laughs> all these little rules about you know about a certain dignified way of behaving. <laughs> so uh, sila here could be is better translated not as morality. They always do that. It's more like ethics, which is to do with relationship. And this relationship also is to do with things. See, that's why I keep going about doors. I mean, poor doors. <laughs> They've suffered a lot in this place. I can tell you. So it's a case of. Uh, recognize that if we're gentle with doors we're probably a bit more gentle with people you know when you go home just watch how you kick the French door shut you know just catch yourself doing it <laughs> as you're sort of leaving it with your hands full and give it a kick or put your pan down on top of the stove you know bang you know <laughs> as though you though you've got a grudge so uh, <clears throat> that's morality Renunciation we've talked about, and this renunciation, remember, that's, the, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to see where our attachments are and slowly undermine them completely until we get to the end where our relationship to life is just radically different. When I say radically different, it's not as though we don't have, you know, right relationship now. It's just that it, it begins to corrupt. We, we override it. We override it. So we take, for instance, uh, the, our little grace before meals and that gives us the right attitude and we're eating the food and there's always this little bit of override of, of wanting to uh, indulge in the taste. See? 
I noticed today that uh, a few people, many more than usual, went up for seconds. I won't say any more. Uh, wisdom. Wisdom is uh, everything, uh, mainly to do with what we've been talking about all week, the dependent origination, uh, the three characteristics of existence. And remember, there's three levels of wisdom. There's the wisdom that you receive from listening and seeing. And then it becomes your own wisdom, becomes your own uh, when you can actually express it to another. When you can explain Buddhist principles to other people, it's become your own intellectual property, you might say. See? But if somebody says to you, well, what, what is this dependent origination? You say, well, you better go and ask Bodhidharma. <laughs> and it's still, it's still, it's not as though you've not understood it, but it's not been absorbed, it's not been actually masticated and, and turned into your own particular property. So that's where you want to get to, really, you know, at an intellectual level, to be able to explain to yourself karma, dependent origination, um, uh, these characteristics of existence and so on. And then, of course, they become real because you actually experience them. And then, then, and then they're coming right from the, from the heart of experience. Uh, energy, right energy. Uh, it's right there also in the Eightfold Path energy. Effort, commitment, um, stability, you know, diligence. We've got masses of words for this, for this sort of right effort, zeal. Um, you know, not giving up, committed. That's that's the sort of that's what this means. It doesn't mean you know the energy to run around a bit. It's a sort of it's the energy you need for that commitment to the path. Resolution. So this is part of it, the resolution bit, the aditana, uh, and it that energy shades into these resolutions that we make, and. Um, Resolutions only last just about for as long as you say them, you know. So you've got to keep you've got to keep resolving. So every day you've got to resolve, uh, even in relationships, you know. This um, uh, taking refuge in precepts, for instance, people who've committed themselves to the path, uh, sometimes for a short time, a year, other times for for life, um, and it's like you get the feeling, well, I've done it now, and that's it. No, it has to be constant. It's like it's like a, it's like a marriage uh, or a, a relationship, but especially a, a marriage. You know, like once you've once you've committed yourself at the marriage ceremony, that's it. You can forget it now. And of course, it, what happens is the uh, the uh, the little destructive things that happen in relationships and all that build up, and there's nowhere there's nowhere where it can it can be resolved. So for me. Uh, like the anniversary for, a, uh, for somebody who's married is an occasion of forgiveness and re-establishing the sort of right relationship. And if you don't do that, it just gets, it just wanders off the path. And um, I remember saying this when I was, at a, uh, I was asked to give a little talk and do little ceremonies for a friend at his at his marriage, and I said, I pointed out that you know the love we're talking about is an emotion. I says, you know, uh, sometimes you have a romantic emotion towards your partner, sometimes you don't. 
and sometimes you love them and sometimes you don't. But that's not the love which we're talking about when we're talking about a relationship, whether it's between married people, a friendship, between parents and their child. It's a sort of commitment to the person. Okay? And the commitment is defined by the relationship you've made. So obviously for a parent, it's that commitment of parenting and so on. And you've got, to, you've got to separate that out. And that's the resolution, you see. That's your commitment. Then there's loving kindness. And finally, equanimity. So equanimity, as I think pointed out when, when you first came, was uh, arguably the most important of these qualities. Because uh, what equanimity does is it stops all these things falling into their what's known as their near enemy, or better still, their subtle enemy. How love slips into attachment, compassion into grief, and so on and so forth. Uh, how, for instance, even courage can move into foolhardiness. That's his near energy. His obvious one is cowardice, but his near energy is foolhardiness. So you can see in that particular case a lack of wisdom, you know, being, being a bit stupid about, about what you can do. So um, equanimity is meant to keep you at that. It's meant to, meant to be a sort of base between, underneath us, which is calm, uh, steadiness of attention, a sort of recognition of what's happening. So that as soon as, we, as soon as we come off into the near enemy, we're sort of aware of it. But if you're caught up in it, you see, if there's a sort of uh, excitement, excitement, a sort of uh, over-excitement into something, then the equanimity is lost. It's a sort of, you're always coming off a, a, a deeper base of calmness. That's the idea of equanimity. And again, it's, uh, it's something, you, something we can develop, you know. And it's not, obviously not easy. It's, it's something that comes with uh, just the practice of it. And the important thing is this stopping. I keep talking about stopping. I keep trying to do it myself, frankly. You just stop for a moment and, and just see the momentum uh, what's in that momentum? So some of it's wholesome, some of it isn't. Some of it, some of it, you have to wait until it passes. When, as the momentum drops, you see, it begins to lose energy. That calm base arises just quite naturally, and out of that, you get your next intention, and off you go. So it really is this just this effort to just keep stopping as much as you can throughout in, in your daily life. So, uh, <clears throat> tomorrow we have this uh, little celebration. It's uh, really celebrating uh, the anniversary of the founding of this place. But it also, uh, I would like to point out, you'll hear me point out the Mahaji Sidor as well. So, it's, uh, I'll offer an occasion for those people who have taken refuge and precepts to uh, re-establish that commitment. And uh, just in case somebody might be thinking of doing that, it's uh, just very quickly, it really is finding your, your reference point. Right? What, does, what, is, what is the fount which is giving meaning to the rest of your life, even to death? Right? What, what, you know, is there something that you already have which is giving that uh, a complete meaning to your life, from birth until death, and everything you're doing day after day? and all the, uh, all the things in your spiritual portfolio, are they all just disparate elements, like on a roundabout? You're sort of jumping from a horse onto a camel, and then 
<laughs> or is it or are you actually right in the center of that roundabout and these things just come up and you're move and you're always moving from the center you're not on the periphery just jumping from one to the other see so that the idea of the spiritual path is that you do have this grounding you see you know who is your basic contact point your reference point and uh, in, uh, in, in Buddhism we have these three. The first one is the Buddha himself. So the Buddha is both a historical figure uh, um, who, who is a teacher. He's taught us this particular path. He's the exemplar. He actually travelled it. He's not teaching it as some intellectual understanding that he's got through life. And he's an archetype in the sense that that, that path is, is true for all human beings. If you look at any spiritual tradition... Is always about renunciation. You know, look at all the saints from the Desert Fathers to Saint Francis, Mother Teresa of uh, Calcutta. All these people that you know, Gandhi. All these people are renunciates. I mean, that's a spiritual path. And also uh, the more uh, lay people, like um, uh, who's the South African president? I forget his name. Mandela. 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 Got it. Mandela. I mean, you know, he he. Um, he gave his life to, to, this, to this whole thing. I mean, it's, it's a set, he's a secular saint, you might say. So, uh, in that sense, he's the archetype. But, of course, what we're really taking refuge in, from a spiritual point of view, is the Buddha within. Uh, it's an under, we're, we're putting a certain confidence that there is something in us which is seeking liberation and will be liberated. Uh, although, uh, the Buddha would, I don't think, make uh, such an outlandish statement as I'm going to make. But I, I can't imagine it not being a spiritual, psychological imperative that everybody, in the end, must become fully liberated. Because that's the trajectory everybody's on, even when they seem to be going the opposite way. Even when they're sort of getting into murky waters and, and doing terrible things. They're always, if you ask them, they're always doing it for what they think is a good reason. I mean, these ISIL people, you know, lots of them. And it's always a twisted love. It's always a love for something, but it's just, it's, it's off. And the Dharma is um, the teaching, which is also this practice, right? The teaching and the practice. And, um, and that's really where the foundation is, because it's the practice itself which is, which is uh, realizing the path for us from moment after moment. And then the Sangha is, again, traditionally those people who've experienced uh, Nibbana. So they're witnesses to the Buddha. But uh, his company, you know, when the Buddha's asked what does he mean by right livelihood, he says uh, good companionship. It's interesting, isn't it? He doesn't say making money or <laughs> being a, you know, going out and helping lepers. He doesn't, he doesn't define it in those terms. He just says it's good companionship. That's where, that's where you find your right livelihood. So in other words, when you want to do something and you find the right companions, then you have, you have this momentum that forms. And in, in the doing, that becomes your livelihood. Yeah? Perhaps, perhaps it could be translated as lifestyle. I don't know. So that's what the three refuges are. And they become your reference point. That's what it means. And of course the training rules are just basically a platform where you just don't want to go. So, somewhere. 
But the, and of course, we usually have problems with the, the last one. You know, I take drinks and drugs, that cloud the mind. You know, what's wrong with a glass of wine and all that? And uh, really, they are training rules. They're not commandments. They're not sort of absolute statements, thou shalt not. It's just, if you want to go on the path, this is, this is the way you train yourself. So, you know, it's, it's up to the individual how they want to define these things for themselves. But ultimately, knowing, uh, say, the effect of alcohol on the body anyway, uh, you, you generally wouldn't want to do it. So, uh, we've covered a bit of ground there. And I can only hope that you uh, will continue with your uh, practice and you will devote yourself to your self-betterment, uh, that my words have been an encouragement and not a discouragement, and that you will attain full liberation sooner rather than later. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.